So Dr. Chen, we talked about some of the challenges from the provider's perspective, but I know there's challenges also from the payer perspective. How about, what are those challenges associated with biosimilar uptake? You know, I think one thing is important to note um, that um, we definitely also need to educate the providers and then making sure there's incentive for providers as well. And to everybody's point, making sure providers are also supported. So in the health plan perspective, we have a whole team of pharmacists, whole team of case management, um, who can further educate and making sure the patient or members are uh, compliant with taking their medication, understanding what our biosimilar is, uh, and then how can providers and health plan to work much closer uh, together to support the members? You know, close collaboration is so important. Yes. But we also know strategy and design of the benefit also plays an important role. So Dr. Chen, what are some of the strategies payers can employ to really improve the uptake of biosimilars and maybe how does that even intersect with the plan design when you're creating kind of that incentive for use? Yeah, no, definitely. So it uh, goes back to the strategy. I think a lot of time, and we already talked about the education, right? Uh, education to the members, but then also a lot of payer, I mean providers, because uh, providers in large health system are very familiar with biosimilars, the biologic concept. But when you go to more rural area, many providers does not know about the biosimilars. So I think definitely that education to the provider, alignment, collaboration between the provider and health plan, it's always subsequently is gonna be a win-win to better support our members. But to talk about the uh, plan design, you know, I think we all talked about incentive to the members, you know, patients. How can we help them on that injecting the uh, injection of the biosimilar, especially if it burns, or can we send a patient, uh, a home health care nurse to go help them, uh, even though maybe their initial health plan uh, does not provide that service. Um, and then, you know, uh, tier, try to get them into the formulary. Um, those are all different ways we can do on the plan design. We need to understand interchangeability from a provider perspective and also from a payer perspective. And so, Dr. Kayal, maybe you can define interchangeability for us. What are the requirements for the FDA? And what are the details of a switching study versus someone that doesn't have that data? And how, is it a meaningful difference that we should be concerned about or would you treat it more as a class effect? That's a great question. And I think this is actually one of the most important points that we need to understand in the current trend of biosimilars. So an interchangeable biosimilar is one that can be substituted for the reference product without intervention by the prescribing healthcare provider. So an interchangeable biosimilar isn't necessarily more safe or more efficacious than a traditional biosimilar. It just means that the manufacturer of the biosimilar took extra steps to prove to the FDA definitively that there was no clinically meaningful difference in safety and efficacy compared to the reference product. And so that the way a manufacturer would do this is through a switching study. And so a switching study essentially has two groups of patients. One group of patients that start on the reference product and remain on the reference product throughout the study. And then the other group that starts on the reference products may switch to a biosimilar, the one that is being studied to be interchangeable, 
may switch back to the reference product. And then the outcomes of these two groups are compared. And in a switching study that involves a biosimilar that's you know, being touted to be an interchangeable, there has to be no clinically meaningful difference in terms of safety and efficacy amongst the two groups. So again, it doesn't, having that designation doesn't necessarily mean that this biosimilar is better, more efficacious, or more safe. It just means that the FDA had the data provided by the manufacturer through a switching study to prove definitively that there was no difference in the outcomes. And so you do need to have that clinically meaningful, to show that there is no clinically meaningful difference in order to get that designation. Speaking of those interchangeable biosimilars, Dr. K, what are some of the emerging interchangeable biosimilars for inflammatory disease? Well, the infusible biosimilars don't need to be interchangeable because the uh, infusion facility will infuse whichever biosimilars on formulary, and that decision is usually made on the basis of cost. It's the self-administered biosimilars that are given this interchangeability designation, and as of now, the first self-administered biosimilar for inflammatory diseases is going to be adalimumab. The first adalimumab biosimilar currently, as of June 19, 2023, the only one to have the interchangeable designation is Behringer-Ingelheim's alimumab biosimilar. But Pfizer just published the results of their interchangeability study, a successful study that was conducted in rheumatoid arthritis patients uh, in Lancet Rheumatology, and the FDA is currently reviewing those data. The Behringer-Ingelheim alimumab biosimilar interchangeability study was conducted in plaque psoriasis. And plaque psoriasis is an ideal condition in which to study biosimilars because the organ that's involved, unlike inflammatory bowel disease where unless you do endoscopy, you can't directly visualize the organ or in rheumatoid arthritis, the organ is covered by skin. Uh, in psoriasis, you can see the extent of involvement. And there's also no patient subjective measure that's included in the PASI, the psoriasis area severity index. So psoriasis is a great condition in which to study biosimilars in comparison to their reference products. And the first interchangeability study was conducted in plaque psoriasis. Amy, Dr. Kao, what are some of the best practices and how we can educate both providers and our patients on interchangeable biosimilars? Assuming that a provider knows that a biosimilar is available is not enough, because I will, I will bet you that many of them don't necessarily know how many are out there, how many are already available to be prescribed to patients, how many are interchangeable, what that interchangeability means. And even on another level, I'm not confident that many of our providers know necessarily that biosimilars have the same safety and efficacy profiles as the reference product. So I think Figuring out a way to educate providers before you even educate patients is key because they're the ones that are going to be sending that message and relaying it along. Um, but then, you know, making, have, taking the time to make the announcement that these are the biosimilars that are currently available, what they look like because physicians and nurse providers are going to get those questions from their patients. So kind of preempting what is going to happen later on, which is, why does my pen look different? Why is this coming to in a syringe when before it was an auto-injectable, for example? Why is the packaging a different color? These questions that are, you know, patients understandably have when they're dealing with a chronic illness and they've been on the same drug for many, many years, all of a sudden everything is different. So I think assuming that physicians and nurse providers already have this information in mind is, is not a great way to approach it. I think taking that time to really educate them on 
the basics that we just discussed today, what a biosimilar is, what an interchangeable is, how these biosimilars are gonna look differently, and what the patients should expect and what they should expect the patients to approach them with is key. Dr. Chen, as we think about best practices on providers and patients, what is the payer's perspective on that? How can you be a part of that education awareness around interchangeability? Well, um, definitely uh, besides the provider education, I think you, know, you also look at the extended provider. And as I've mentioned, you know, health plan has uh, our case manager who can continue to support the members as well or patients. But um, also looking at the pharmacist. You know, as we know, pharmacists have been very, very instrumental in uh, bringing that conversion and increase the acceptability and utilization of generic drugs. You know, how can we leverage them to help to support uh, integration of that biosimilar, that whole concept as well. Uh, and then lastly, making sure we have patient-friendly language material to educate them. Uh, and then also share with um, your uh, physician extenders, um, physician assistants, and everybody else, you know, because at the end of the day, I think sometimes they speak to your, uh, to our patients, our members, more than the provider themselves. Let's discuss the potential value of these agents to our patients, to our payers and providers in the treatment of inflammatory diseases. And so Dr. Chen, you know, you can't start off interchangeability and biosimilars without a strong payer perspective. So what are some of the potential benefits of interchangeable biosimilars to patients and payers? And if you could speak to that more from the cost perspective and from the timeliness. Yeah, well, so definitely, um by implementing the interchangeability for the biosimilar, there is definitely a significant decrease uh, and improvement of the medical cost, as well as um, uh, accessibility for the member and then timeliness in the receiving the uh, medication for the patient. So, uh, for example, if we look at in U.S., there currently I think there is 37 approved FDA uh, biosimilar uh, medications. Um, meanwhile, uh, there's only 22 that has reached the market in the United States. On the other hand, I think Dr. K had mentioned earlier, in Europe, there's actually have 79 biosimilar uh, that has been approved, uh, and most of them has been marketed. Um, so they have substantially significant amount more saving compared to what U.S. have. Um, and in U.S. for 2018, we only reached about 9% of our targeted uh, $1 billion of savings. Um, and in U.S., there's only two healthcare system has that uh, mandatory uh, interchangeability, uh, which is VA, which is mandatory, as well as Kaiser Permanente. Um, just by implementing uh, that interchangeabilities, they uh, have an improvement of 80% uh, of uh, adherence uh, compared to an average of 3.2%. So uh, again, you know, just by implementing that interchangeability can significantly improve our uh, medical costs as well as adherence. I appreciate the examples of accountable care organizations, and I do think when we think of financial stewardship, you find organizations that have a payer arm and a health care provider arm are a lot more integrated, and they're willing to create those interchangeabilities to help you know, best steward health expense for their organizations and hopefully the patient as well. 
But Dr. Kale, as we know, there's some challenges for biosimilars with interchangeability designation related to the auto substitution in the pharmacy, like we see with AB rated generics or small molecules. What is your thought on that as a provider about some of those challenges and even some of the state laws that come into play? So that's a great question. You know, every state in the United States has its own interchangeability laws. And the challenge is understanding that these laws vary from state to state and how that kind of impacts getting the medication into the patient's hands. Um, these laws vary with respect to communicating with the prescribing healthcare provider that an interchangeable biosimilar is going to be substituted for the reference. They vary with respect to how that is going to be communicated to the patient. And then, of course, they also vary with respect to how this going to be documented by the pharmacist. In addition, and something that Dr. K mentioned, is that the interchangeability really should only apply if there is a cost benefit to the patient. And so many states are going to require that that is a metric that is met, that only if there's a cost benefit to the patient, an interchangeable biosimilar is substituted for the reference product. But this adds a, another layer of challenges to our pharmacists because now they have to understand each patient's managed care landscape, their plans formulary, whether or not this is going to increase or decrease the patient's out of cost pocket. So this adds another layer of challenges to the pharmacist because they have to understand each patient's managed care landscape, their plans formularies, whether this is increasing the patient's out of pocket cost. And so the challenges are really because the laws aren't uniform across the states and understanding each state's variability is key for the pharmacist and the provider to, to ensure that they're getting the right interchangeable. A uh, biosimilar that has been reviewed and approved by the FDA has been shown to be equivalent in efficacy and comparable in safety to its reference product. So there should be no adverse effect to the patient of using a biosimilar, an FDA approved biosimilar, compared to using the reference product. There should be an advantage to the patient, and as I mentioned earlier, that advantage should be economic. The patient should share in the savings. Uh, the ideal biosimilar incentive would be for the pharmacy benefit management uh, company if they want the biosimilar to be prescribed to eliminate prior authorization as a requirement for the biosimilar, whereas to continue to require it for the reference product. For the patient, the copayment should be waived for a biosimilar, but should still be there for the reference product. However, as I alluded to earlier, the pharmacy benefit manager is not always going to favor the biosimilar over the reference product for financial reasons. Uh, and in that situation, the reference product may be favored over the biosimilar. Biosimilars must survive, as was pointed out earlier, that the biosimilars induce market competition and put a break on the inevitable and inexorable rise in cost of reference products over time. If biosimilar manufacturers don't survive and biosimilars go away, the cost of biopharmaceuticals is going to continue to rise as it has prior to the advent of, of biosimilars. Uh, in terms of concerns about interchangeability, a provider can always write no substitution or no interchange or brand medically necessary uh, to prevent interchange. It's only going to be applicable to a few biosimilars because interchange can only occur with interchangeable biosimilars. Uh, and you have to write the prescription for the biosimilar with the four-letter suffix uh, 
or the reference product if it's a reference product that was approved more recently with the four-letter suffix. So the prescriptions are relatively specific and interchange is only going to occur in selected situations and can certainly be prevented by a provider if the provider is so concerned. I think uh, that automatic substitution is a win-win for everybody, right? Uh, as you know, we talked about a lot of administrative burden, prior auth, um, that will take that all away, you know. Member patients will have uh, improved accessibility to the drugs. They have much more timeliness because now they don't, they're not tied up on the prior auth, the administrative burden, provider doesn't have that. Uh, it's an overall cost savings for everybody to shift using the biosimilar rather than uh, biologics. And hopefully that will meet the to the market competitiveness that we all discussed. And then uh, hopefully we'll make a, a biologic much more affordable for everybody as well. Dr. Kahl, question for you is, you know, as payers are reviewing interchangeability, how are they going to prefer these on formularies versus interchangeable and non-interchangeable? And how does that impact the future inclusion on formularies across the board? That's a great question. And of course, I can only talk about it from what I'm perceiving it as a provider um, and what you know my patients are telling me and our pharmacists and, and, and what's being relayed to us. But I can imagine that you know payers are eager to incorporate interchangeable biosimilars into their formularies um, because it's translating into cost savings. And you know, from our perspective, we're hoping, again, that those cost savings are passing along to the patient. Um, but I would imagine that the incorporation of these interchangeables, and I'm not sure that necessarily there's a distinction um, for the payers, and I'm happy to hear Dr. Chen and Dr. Kay's opinion on this from the payer perspective. Is there a distinction? Is it better for it to be an interchangeable biosimilar, perhaps, versus a non-interchangeable biosimilar? I can't imagine that the savings are different in that context. We know that it really just translates into practical implications that it could be substituted by the pharmacist. But again, it comes down to is the payer saving money on this medication that used to be very, very expensive and now significantly less expensive. And so I imagine that payers are excited and eager to incorporate it into their formularies.